Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for your goodness that you have freely shown to us, that you have freely given to us, that you have manifested in Christ Jesus who came and lived a perfect life that we could be saved, who came and died a sinner's death that we could be saved, who came and rose again that we could be saved. Father, we pray this morning that we would rest in His goodness. That as we come to Your Word together, Father, that Christ would be exalted in our worship and in our hearts. That, Father, we would approach Your Word not with pride or arrogance, Father, but with humility allowing it to shape us and change us to make us more like Him. Father, please bless this time and use it for the sake of Your people that we would be sanctified and Christ would be glorified. And we pray this in His name. Amen. Turn, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13 is where we'll be this morning. Hebrews 13. We are continuing with our series on the Christian life, where we have been looking at some of the aspects of our life in Christ that are often taken for granted or misunderstood. Last week, we looked at what it means to live in community, how we are to commit ourselves to the body of Christ for the good of each member, including ourselves. Today, we're going to look at an expansion of this community, hospitality, a broadening of our love for our fellow believers to those outside of our immediate community of faith. And what I hope that we'll see this morning together is that we have a responsibility toward other believers to open our homes and to open our lives to them in the same way that Christ has welcomed us into his household. And so let's look together this morning at Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, where where the first thing we're going to see is persistent love. If you got one of our sermon listening guides out of our bulletin or off the back table, uh, you'll see that there's two points this morning, and that's our first one, persistent love. Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, says this, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. The first command we find in our text this morning is that we are to let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continue. The first thing that we must understand in order to fully apply this imperative to our lives is who is our brother? Who would be considered our brother? If we're going to let brotherly love continue, then we need to know who our brothers are, right? The New Testament repeatedly seeks to reframe our view of family. This is significant because in the Old Testament, and in biblical times in particular, family is the central unit. When God created He created a man and a woman and told them, go forth and multiply. 
And all throughout the Old Testament, God is dealing with whole families. The tribes of Israel are based on this, uh, come from the sons of a father. And it's their families who make up these tribes. And so what the New Testament does is it wants us to think differently about family. Where we first see the bonds of family within the context of our fellow believers rather than in our own bloodline. Jesus starts this process by telling his followers that if anyone doesn't hate his own mother and father or brothers and sisters or husband or wife, then he can't be his disciple. I talked about that last week. He takes this fascination, this infatuation, this connection that we have with families, and he says, that's all well and good, but your connection to me is above that. That's what he means by that. He doesn't mean to be a Christian, you have to hate your whole family. He means you have to love him so much that your love for him looks like, that your love for him makes your love for other people look like hate by comparison. That everything else takes a back seat to your love for Jesus Christ. That's the idea. And the reason for this is because of things that we see happening in our day right now. We see people who have been committed Christians for decades all of a sudden going back on what the Bible gives us as right sexual ethics and saying, oh, well, you know, now that my grandson has come out as homosexual or my granddaughter has come out as transgender, I'm going to change my mind about what the Bible says about these things. Because their love for family trumps their love for Christ. That's backwards. Okay? And so the New Testament, Christ himself wants us to reframe our concept of who our family is. My first family is you. That's it. My devotion and allegiance is to Christ and his body before it is to my mother or my brothers. That's the reality. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 helps us to see this even further, where John begins that chapter by referring to believers as my little children, this particular set of believers. And so if we are all his little children, then he continues in verse 9 when he says, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. He's helping us to see our family is the church. The scriptures even go so far as to call Christ our brother. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 12, it says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should, be made the should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. So not only are we siblings in Christ, Christ himself is our brother. So when the text tells us to let our brotherly love continue, we should rightly recognize this as a call to love our fellow believers. Now ladies, you are included in this, just to be clear. I know I've said a brother a lot, and some of you are going, yes, I'm off the hook. I don't have to do that, just the dudes. 
No, it's not that. The reason why this text says brothers and not brothers and sisters has more to do with the usage of language. And so please understand that when I'm saying brothers and when the text says brotherly love, it's intended for all of us as Christians. Okay, And I'm going to talk a little bit more about why this particular text is translated this way. It's on purpose um, in a little bit. So we'll come back to that. But I want you to notice something else. The verse says to let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continue. This is not a unique command that has been issued by the author of Hebrews. All right, this is not the author of Hebrews, who I believe to be Paul. Um, people disagree on that, and that's okay. But this is not where this is not this person saying, I'm going to give you something unique and significantly special, right? Nobody else is going to tell you this. This is a continuation. This is an encouragement to maintain adherence to an existing command given by Jesus. You may remember that the Pharisees came to Jesus one day seeking to trick him. And they said, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then Jesus goes a step further and says, and the second is like it. You must love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus says that first we love God and then we love others. And so these two things are connected together. Jesus also says that the way that the world knows we are his disciples is by the way that we love one another. In John 13, 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And I want to make something really clear here. The new command that Jesus gives is not love one another. That's not a new command. Because we just established the second greatest commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. So it's not a new command to love one another. The new part of the command is where Jesus says, just as I have loved you, you must love one another. That's the new part of the command. Because before, it was just love your neighbor as yourself. But now Jesus is taking it a step further and saying, the way you love your neighbor as yourself is by loving them the way that I have loved you. Well, how has Jesus loved us? Well, Jesus has loved us by giving of himself. And not giving of himself a little bit, not giving of himself until it became inconvenient and then stopped, not giving of himself to the point of saying, okay, I've given an awful lot, now I need some me time. Jesus gave of himself to the point of death. And when Jesus gives up his life, he is giving infinitely more than any of us can ever give. We need to make sure we understand this. Because sometimes I think we believe that we have given as much as Christ has given in our sacrificial love for other people. And we haven't. And I don't only mean that you're still alive. That's not the only thing that I mean there. Because we have to remember what the scriptures tell us about what we see in Christ's love for his people. A few weeks ago, Pastor Michael 
preached on being conformed to his image out of Philippians chapter 2. And Philippians 2 is a phenomenal passage for many different reasons, but one of them is to help us to see the fullness of the love of Christ for his people. And it immediately helps us to recognize right at the beginning that Christ did not consider his equality with God as a thing to be held on to, as a reason to say, I'm not going there. I'm not doing that. Why would I go and willingly suffer? Why would I go and surrender myself to this? I am God. Far too often, we are unwilling to give up our small conveniences for the sake of other people, whereas Christ was willing to take on flesh and suffer. We are willing to love to a point until it gets uncomfortable, until it gets painful. Then we say, okay, I'm out. I got I to gotta put me first. I got to take care of me. That is not the way that Christ loves. And so we are called as Christians to love one another as Christ has loved us. And so when the author of Hebrews tells us to let brotherly love continue, he is saying, keep loving as Christ has loved us. That's what this means. Jesus is the only one who has ever truly loved his neighbor as himself. And we must love one another in that same way. That means that we are to love in sacrificial ways, ways that may even be particularly difficult for us. One of the things that has happened a lot over the course of recent history is we have seen the rise of language like toxic people and toxic relationships and those sorts of things. And I see memes all over social media about how it's okay to cut toxic people out of your life and it's okay to not have those relationships and it's okay to say no more. Brothers and sisters, I'm going to be real honest with you. That is not the way that Christians should think. I'm sorry. I am here to tell you that you are commanded to love even when it hurts. You must still love. The command to turn the other cheek is not about the other set of cheeks, if you know what I mean. Thank you, I got Jody to shake her head. I know she's awake. <laughs> the command to turn the other cheek is literally to say, you have harmed me, and I will allow you to harm me again. So in practical terms, here's what that means. I'll put it in terms for, for me and my own family. I am called as a follower of Christ to turn the other cheek. I am not called to turn my wife's other cheek or my children's other cheeks. And so, if someone comes to harm my children, they will be met with fury. But if they come to harm me, I am called to turn the other cheek. That is the way that we are called to love. That is the way that Christ loved. Christ offered himself up to die for those who hated him, for those who despised him, for those who rejected him. He literally died for the people who nailed him to the cross. And we as Christians want to say, well, that person hurt my feelings, and so I'm not going to be their friend. We can't operate that way. And listen, I don't say these things lightly. I don't say these things in a flippant way as, as if it is easy to do that. 
I come from an abusive home with an abusive father. And I have sought to reestablish relationship with him. It has not been successful, but I have tried. And I don't say that to say, look how great I am. I say that to say, I am practically trying to put this into play in my own life. We must love as Christ has loved us. This was an especially big ask in the context in which it was written. Because the church was being persecuted. And they were being driven from their homes and their livelihoods. And in the midst of that... They were commanded to continually love one another sacrificially, seeking the good of others above their own. We must be careful to not let our difficult circumstances give us license to neglect the care of others because we must let brotherly love continue. And I want to make sure I clarify something here, okay? Because there are two types of brother in view here. The first type is Christian brethren, okay? Those are the people that I'm referring to when I'm saying we must love and love and love and love even when it hurts. But we also are brothers with all of creation because all of us have been made in the image of God. And so there are those who are outside of the church and we must love them too. We don't love them in the same way We don't have the same calling in how we love them, but we must still love them. The commands that Jesus gave to turn the other cheek were commands given in the context of those who seek to do you harm. And so please understand, some have tried to say, well, you only have to love other Christians. Anybody who's not a Christian, done. The only people that the Bible gives us license to disassociate from are those who claim to be Christians whose lives indicate that they are not. Those are the people that the scriptures tell us do not associate with this person. Everyone else, we must love. Now that does not mean you have to continually put yourself in harm's way. Okay? Please hear me when I say that. When someone harms you, You need to be willing to be harmed again for the sake of loving them. But that does not mean if someone harms you and they're way far away from you, whether physically or just in terms of relationship, that you need to then go back and say, okay, please hurt me some more. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that we must continue to love them, even if it hurts. Because that is what Christ did. As Christ was being beaten as Christ was being nailed to the cross, as Christ was being crucified, do you know what he said? Father, forgive them. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The thieves on the cross, both were mocking Jesus at first, and then one of them stopped. And what did Jesus do? He told him, today you'll be with me in paradise. Christ loved to the point of death. We must do the same. We must let brotherly love continue. And that brings us to the second command in our text today. Our second point this morning is open doors, open lives. Open doors, open lives. Hebrews 13, verse 2, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, 
for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Before we get too far into this, I want to circle back to something that I said earlier. I talked about how the, the way the language is used has to do with why it says brothers here and not brothers and sisters. Um, the way that these points are communicated in the original language kind of comes across as being written in a way that it's easy to memorize. And, and I want to tell you what I mean. They both begin with the same root in Greek. The first verse one says, brother love, let continue. Brother love being the Greek word Philadelphia, where the city of Philadelphia comes from. If you've heard it called the city of brotherly love and never known why, now you know. Okay? And then the second verse says, stranger love, do not neglect. Philoxenia. So you have Philadelphia and then Philoxenia, okay? Those are the two things there. So brother love, let continue. Stranger love, do not neglect. They're back to back. And they're kind of phrased that way, I think, to help the people who read it remember. Brother love, let continue. Stranger love, do not neglect. That's how, it's, that's how it's written. So that's why it says brotherly love instead of brother and sisterly love. That doesn't work as well for a, for a mnemonic device like this. Just so you know. This is significant for our purposes because it helps us to see that the first command helps to undergird the second command. It rightly places our hospitality as flowing out of our love for the brethren. And the framing of it as not neglecting reminds us that this is not extra. This is a continuation. That's why it says, let brotherly love continue. This thing that you're already doing, keep doing it. And also, don't neglect hospitality. He doesn't say, add hospitality on top. Don't neglect showing hospitality. To not show hospitality, in other words is to not let brotherly love continue. If you're not showing hospitality, you are not letting brotherly love continue. You are doing it wrong. The same sort of sacrificial love that we show for the believers that we know is what we are called to with the believers that we don't. Did you hear me there? The same sort of sacrificial love that we show for the believers that we know is what we are called to with those that we don't. One of the things that this church is very, very good at is fellowshipping with one another, loving one another. We are very good at that. But our love for other Christians should not just end with those who are a part of this body. Our love for other Christians should be for all other Christians. And y'all are great at when new Christians show up, loving them. That's perfect. That's exactly what hospitality is. When new Christians come into your life, however that happens, show the same sort of brotherly, sacrificial love for them that you do for the Christians that you know. We can easily see how this is important in a time of such instability within the body of Christ. There are people who were leaving one place in a rush and seeking a new life elsewhere as they were facing persecution. And believers were called to open their homes and their lives to those people who are in need of this kind of aid. This isn't something that we currently face too much of in our day, especially not here in America. We don't have too many people move into Sixth Ward because they're facing persecution elsewhere. Now, 
just so you're aware, that might be happening sooner rather than later. As the fight over things like abortion and homosexual rights and transgender rights, so-called, continues to escalate, there are states and local municipalities that are becoming more and more overtly hostile to those who hold biblical viewpoints on these things. They are literally saying we're not going to do business with people who believe the wrong thing. We're going to, there's a law being proposed in Virginia right now that will utilize child protective services to take children away from parents who refuse to acknowledge their children's preferred gender. These things are coming. They are coming. And there very well may come a time when six places like Sixth Ward are places that Christians move to because this is a place where they're not going to lose their job if they don't bow down to the homosexual agenda. These things may come in our lifetimes. And so we need to understand these things rightly because of it. The unity that we see in these two commands to let brotherly love continue and to not neglect to show hospitality also helps us to bear in mind that this kind of hospitality is not necessarily expected of us with those outside of the body. But we are to show hospitality to those who are believers. Okay? So this does not, the biblical command to show hospitality has often been misused to say, oh, well, no, you you have to allow anybody who asks to come into your home, to take your things. You know, we have to open our doors to literally everyone. People have used biblical commands for hospitality to say that laws about laws about about how to manage immigration are unjust and that a truly Christian nation should just fling wide the doors and say, everybody who wants to come, come, because we're going to be hospitable. That's not what the Bible is talking about. The Bible is talking about Christians showing hospitality to other Christians. And so the question then becomes, what exactly is hospitality? You know, we we use that word to describe an entire industry, things like hotels and restaurants and stuff like that. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about biblical hospitality. And so I want to show you some, some scriptures that help us to see the different things that hospitality is coming from the Bible. So the first thing that we see, the hospitality, is a warm greeting, a greeting. Genesis 18, 2, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. One of the things that's, that's not explicitly talked about here, but this is Abraham, okay? And Abraham is an old man, and when he sees these visitors one of whom we'll get to in a little bit is, is actually Jesus, he, he runs, which is something that old men don't do. And he runs and he bows down to the earth. He is showing deference to them. He is saying, you are important. So this is not to say you must, when you have a visitor, when you show hospitality, you need to run and bow down to the ground before them, okay? Please don't do that if you invite me to your home. That's gonna be weird for both of us, okay? But it's warm greetings, within the custom of your culture. Some cultures greet with a kiss on the cheek, some cultures greet with a handshake, some cultures greet with a hug. Whatever it is, show warm greetings. 
The next thing, hospitality is welcoming someone into our home. Genesis 24, 31, he said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord, why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. Inviting them into your home. Another thing that hospitality entails is an invitation to rest. An invitation to rest. Judges 4.19, and he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. It also provides an opportunity to wash, which is more significant in biblical times than it is in our day, but it also provided that sort of an opportunity. Genesis 24, 32. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels, and there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Hospitality is also a provision of food and drink. Judges 19, 5. And on the fourth day, they arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that, you may go. And so we are to provide food and drink for those who we invite into our home. It's also an invitation to converse. An invitation to converse. Genesis 24, 33. Then food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, speak on. And so it's not just, hey, treat us like a hotel and a restaurant, come in, sleep, eat, leave. It's establishing a relationship with them. And the final thing we see in biblical terminology for hospitality is a provision of security. Genesis 19.8. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Now I want to pause here and say, this is an example of showing a provision for safety, but it's also a very wicked example. And I'm going to come back to this in a moment, but I just want to say that right now. All right, what I just read to you is a right example of provision for safety, but it is a wrong example of how to go about that, okay? So we'll come back to that in a moment. Now, I know what some of you are thinking at this moment as I read this list. You are thinking, I cannot do this. I can't do this. That is unsafe. It is reckless. It is dangerous. It is foolish to say to a stranger, come into my home. Be among my family, eat my food, sleep under my roof. I have no idea who you are. Welcome in. This is foolhardy, right? The author of Hebrews anticipates this objection and gives us a reasoning that is shown in Scripture. Remember that this objection is likely from believers in this time, from the believers in this time period as well. Because they are under threat from those who seek to do them harm for their faith in Christ. And so it is entirely possible that new people come to town saying, I'm a persecuted Christian. I need a place to stay. Can you, can you help me out? Are you a fellow Christian? Only trying to trap this person to trick them because they're not really a Christian. They are someone pretending to be so they can do harm. And so they, there, there are legitimate safety objections to this. But the author of Hebrews says, those who have shown hospitality have sometimes entertained angels unawares. That's the whole point of that there. 
The whole point of that there is not to say, hey, listen, you guys might get to have angels in your house. That's not the point. All right? The point here is to show us that although the person you welcome into your home might be worse than you feared, it is also possible that they are far better than you anticipated. We see this play out in places like the call of Gideon in Judges 6 and the promise of the birth of Samson in Judges 13. Both of those are places where people are visited by angels without necessarily knowing that they're angels. But the two most famous instances of this, two most well-known instances of entertaining angels unawares occur back-to-back in the book of Genesis. The first one is in Genesis 18, where Abraham is still out. He has settled by the oaks of Mamre. And we see in Genesis 18.1, it says this, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. So the scriptures tell us that this is the Lord. This is Jesus along with two angels, and they show up at Abraham's tent. It says he looked up, and all of a sudden, there they were. He doesn't necessarily know that it's Jesus and two angels. He doesn't know that. He just sees strangers passing through, and he shows them hospitality. He gives deference to them. He offers them food and water. He has their uh, he, he, wants to, he wants to have them refresh themselves. He gives them opportunity to wash their feet. All those things that we were talking about before. Now over time it becomes clear to Abraham that this is a visit from the Lord. And one of the reasons why they're in the area is because they are there to cast judgment upon Sodom. Which is where his nephew Lot has settled. And so they go on their way and Abraham goes with them. And the Lord stays with Abraham, and the two angels go on to Sodom to go see Sodom. And so in Genesis 19, 1 through 3, we find this. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No. We will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. So at first glance, this seems like Lot is just zealously showing hospitality. No, 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 no. I'm not going to let you sleep in the town square. You're not going to do that. You're going to come to my house. I'm going to cook you some food. You're going to stay with me. It'll be way better than sleeping out in the town square. What becomes clear is that Lot was also acting out of concern for these strangers because he knows what the men of that city are like. And in case you're unfamiliar with the story, I'm not going to get into graphic detail, but here's what I will say. A little while later, the men of the city show up at Lot's house 
banging on his door. And they're saying, hey, we saw you had two strange men in there. Send us out. Send them out for us. We would like to have our way with them. And that means exactly what it means. That's what they were trying to do. And Lot pleads with them not to do this. And that brings us back to what I read earlier, where Lot says, I have daughters who have never been with a man. You can have them instead. Now, please understand, this is horrifically wicked. There is no excusing what Lot offers these men. I have heard some say hospitality is more important than the safety of your family. No, that's not what, this, that's not what that passage is talking about. This passage is helping us to see, like most Old Testament passages do, even the quote-unquote righteous are not all that righteous. Lot's offer is extraordinarily sinful. Now, the men refuse the offer. They say, no, no, no. We want those dudes. And at this point, they reveal themselves in a certain sense to be angels. They strike all the men out in the, outside the door with blindness. And then they tell Lot, anybody you care about in this place, anybody in your family, tell them it's time to go because we're going to destroy it. And they leave, and the Lord destroys it. And Lot's wife famously looks back and turns into a pillar of salt. But the whole idea here is to recognize, again, that hospitality is necessary. Because if these were just random men who happened into Sodom, who stayed in the town square, what happens to those men? Unspeakably awful things. That's why hospitality is necessary for the care of those that are made in the Lord's image. And so what we see, like I said before, is that even though the person that we show hospitality to may be worse than we feared, they also might be significantly better than we could have possibly expected. In Abraham's case, he literally played host to the Lord Jesus Christ. In Lot's case, if he had feared to show hospitality, imagine the dichotomy there where the, angel, the, the, the men that he hosted were significantly better than the people he lived next door to. Should he have feared the stranger when he lived next to literal monsters? Absolutely not. That's the whole concept here. We should not fear hospitality. Because when we show hospitality... We gain from it. And so we must remember that the same kinds of principles that apply to living in community, being open and accountable to one another, being honest with one another, all of those things also apply to hospitality. And so we need to open our lives to fellow believers, even those we haven't met yet. We must be willing to show hospitality. Hospitality is significant enough that it is found in both of the lists of elder qualifications. In 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1, elders are said that they must be hospitable. The command of hospitality is echoed in Romans 12 and in 1 Peter 4. 
showing us that this is not just a one-off small matter that we can easily dismiss. We must open our homes and our lives to other believers. Because to live in community means to broaden that community when given the opportunity. And when we fear, when we have concerns, we need to remember that just as Christ has freely given himself for us, we must freely give our own lives. And so we need to be prepared for hospitality. We need to be prepared for hospitality. That means that it might be something as simple as, I have an extra pillow and blanket, so if someone shows up, they can sleep on my couch. Something as simple as that. Listen, I understand that this is a difficult ask. I got three little kids. My house is a constant tornado of noise and disaster. And the call for hospitality is still on me too. And so that's why we invite people in. Random strangers have shown up to church. I've never met them before. And we say, hey, do you want to come over for lunch? I've done that before at our church in California. And one of my church members heard me say that. And they pulled me to the side and they were like, why did you do that? You don't know that person. I was like, yeah, I know. Well, we have to show hospitality. And they just looked at me like something was wrong with me and just walked, ahead, walked away shaking their head. Because it's like a foreign concept. But it shouldn't be. We need to open our lives in the same way that Christ has freely opened his. And we need to trust in Jesus as our peace, as our safety, and as our provision. You might say, well, I don't have enough. I don't have the resources to be hospitable to someone. Well, do you trust the Lord to give you what you need? Because you should. Because he will. Give of yourself, give of what you have, and trust the Lord with the rest. And maybe you're here today and you're hearing all this talk about Christians loving one another and showing hospitality to one another and you're thinking to yourself, this is all very weird. This is all very strange. Well, might I venture to say that if this is all sounding very foreign to you, it likely means that you're not in Christ, that you don't know him. And my encouragement to you today would be to recognize that Christ Jesus himself has welcomed you in, has offered himself to you and for you. He has given his life that you might be forgiven and be reconciled to him. He has shown hospitality to his enemies, to those who sought to do him harm. And so in just a moment, Brother Scott's going to come, Miss Rebecca's going to come, we're going to have a time of, of response. We're going to sing together. And if this is something that you would like to talk more about, to learn more about, to have me pray with you about, I would be glad to do that. You can seek me out during this time. You can seek me out after church is over. But I would love to talk with you more about how you too can know Christ and how, for Christians, how you too can show hospitality, how we can love the Lord in those ways. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word for the ways that you use it to shape us, to help us to recognize where we must grow and change. Father, I pray that you would help us to be a people who are known for hospitality, that we would be like Christ in all that we do.
We pray this in his name. Amen.